This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the Ancient World Rediscovery. Episode R6, The Heroic Age. The event was pretty much standing room only, packed with royals, scholars, and other notables from all corners of the country and even beyond. The date was January 19, 1850, and the rock star of the moment was England's own favorite son, Henry Creswick Rawlinson, on leave from Baghdad and slated to drop the latest knowledge on the state of cuneiform decipherment. What everyone was hoping for was the announcement of a major breakthrough, maybe even an earth-shattering revelation or two. But Despite the anticipation of the packed crowd, Rawlinson was far too serious a scholar to play the sensationalism card. Instead, he stuck to the facts. Yes, it was true, he now knew every letter and every word of the Akkadian text of the Behistun inscription, and could even translate other basic Akkadian texts with some accuracy. But as far as Rawlinson was concerned, he was still far from considering himself a master of the Akkadian language. He compared the effort to deciphering Egyptian hieroglyphics, a process that took decades after the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, and in some respects was still ongoing. Rawlinson considered Akkadian even more challenging, and believed that there were still years of hard work ahead. That said, Rawlinson did report significant progress in his ongoing translation of the Black Obelisk of Assyria, recovered at Nimrud several years before. In fact, unknown to Rawlinson, he was tantalizingly close to a genuine earth-shattering discovery. The knowledge that one figure on the obelisk was the first historical depiction of a Hebrew ruler, King Jehu of Israel. So, why was Akkadian taking so long? Well, a couple reasons. First, there was the fact that many characters appeared to be polyphones, representing more than one sound. 
Rawlinson attributed this, correctly, to the fact that the letters had originally been pictograms and had gone through a gradual transition from ideas to sounds. But scholars were starting to suspect an additional wrinkle, that many Akkadian symbols had been borrowed from an entirely different and even more ancient cuneiform language. It was the pulling of this string that would eventually lead to the discovery of the Sumerians. After saying his final goodbyes to Behistun, Rawlinson had spent most of 1848 and 1849 back in Baghdad, wrestling with Akkadian between recurring bouts of illness. The pressure was ramped up by the emergence of a number of rival scholars, each eager to claim the cuneiform crown. And the situation was further exacerbated by the fact that Rawlinson seldom published his findings until he had all his ducks in a row, while some rivals publish early and often, even with plenty of mistakes in the mix, just to take credit for being first. Laird spent most of 1848 back in England, working on the two-volume manuscript that would soon become the veritable Bible of Assyriology, Nineveh and its Remains, which was kind of funny since the book was mainly about Nimrod, but I guess Nineveh tested better with the focus groups. By November 1848, Laird had made his way back down to Istanbul, in early 1849, his book finally broke, and broke big, all across Europe. At the same time, the display of his Nimrod finds had just opened in the British Museum, and quickly became a huge sensation. All these factors positioned Laird perfectly to resume his excavations. In July 1849, Laird set out for Mosul, he also recalled Hormuzd Rassam from his studies at Oxford to resume his role of right-hand man, which Rassam wasn't super happy about since he was rather enjoying Oxford. But, well, what are you going to do? Returning to Nineveh after a two-year absence, Laird was greeted by a maze of newly cut subterranean passages. In order to avoid moving huge quantities of dirt, his workers had decided to tunnel along walls and sink periodic surface shafts to let in air and light. Laird liked the approach, basically only removing enough earth to reveal the sculptured palace walls, and told them to keep at it. Laird and Rassam's excavations at both Nineveh and Nimrud continued over the next year. In the summer of 1850, workers at Nineveh found hundreds of clay tablets stacked in two small rooms, rising to a level of a foot or higher off the floor. Later that summer, Laird finally hit the motherlode. As he described it, his discovery was a large room filled with what appeared to be the archives of the empire, piled in huge heaps from the floor to the ceiling. What he'd found was the library of Ashurbanipal, a vast storehouse of some 30,000 items, including all the great works of the Mesopotamian canon. Technically speaking, there were two royal libraries. Laird had found the records stored in Sennacherib's palace without rival, 
The remaining records, stored in Ashurbanipal's own palace, would be discovered a few years later by Hormuz Rassam. Either way, one thing was certain. The distant days foreseen by Ashurbanipal almost exactly 2,500 years before had finally arrived. In October 1850, Laird sent a large shipment of finds, including Lamassu and sculptured palace walls, downriver to Basra. In December, he traveled south to explore the remains of Babylon, as well as another site known locally as Nippur, actually ancient Nippur. Unsatisfied with his findings, and unable to travel farther south due to local unrest, Laird returned to Mosul in early 1851. At the end of April, increasingly frustrated by the poor quality of British Museum support, Laird made the fateful decision to leave Assyria for good and return home to England. In his wake, the Assyrian excavations would be taken up by a number of individuals. Most notably, his former aide Hormuz Rassam, the new French consul at Mosul, Victor Plas, and, once he returned to Baghdad, Rawlinson himself. But with Laird's departure, the brief and brilliant period of major Assyrian discoveries was nearing an end. Laird would later summarize his staggering accomplishments at Nineveh. I opened not less than 71 halls, chambers, and passages whose walls, almost without exception, had been paneled with slabs of sculptured alabaster recording the triumph and great deeds of the Assyrian kings. By a rough calculation, nearly two miles of bas-reliefs, with 27 portals formed by colossal winged bulls and lion sphinxes, were uncovered. Can I repeat that for you? Two miles of Assyrian reliefs. Damn. Back in the summer of 1850, while Laird was digging his tunnels and trenches under the hot Assyrian sun, Rawlinson received both an honorary degree from Oxford and a military promotion to the rank of lieutenant colonel. He also continued to be swept up in the London social and academic scene to the general detriment of his cuneiform studies. By the spring of 1851, Rawlinson finally got some traction again, publishing a list of 246 Akkadian symbols, each with its associated phonetic value and ideographic value, or meaning. There were plenty of errors in the list, Rawlinson certainly admitted as much, but if nothing else, it was a solid foundation to build on. By late summer 1851, Rawlinson had established the names of the Assyrian kings recorded at Nimrud, Nineveh, and Khorsabad, and also identified the names of Judah, Hezekiah, Jerusalem, and Samaria, forging another hard connection between the Assyrians and the Old Testament. In the fall, Rawlinson's leave was finally up, and he was forced to leave England and resume his post in Baghdad. In late December, shortly after his return, Rawlinson learned that another Assyriologist, an Irish clergyman named Edward Hinks, had beaten him to the punch by identifying the figure of King Jehu on the Black Obelisk. 
Over the past few years, Hinks had grown to become Rawlinson's greatest rival, and even claimed credit for translating many of the Akkadian symbols that Rawlinson had published that spring. Hamstrung by his own modest means, low social standing, reluctance to join learned societies, and general lack of diplomatic flair, Hinks felt himself to be unfairly overshadowed by the larger-than-life Rawlinson. This frustration was often vented in his scholarly writings, which only served to exacerbate the friction between the two. In January 1852, the Royal Asiatic Society published Rawlinson's paper on the Akkadian text of the Behistun inscription. The work was a detailed line-by-line analysis of the inscription, along with notes on the characters, vocabulary, and grammar, similar to his old Persian decipherment package from a few years earlier. Before leaving England, Rawlinson had also given a friend permission to publish his copy of the full Elamite text from Behistun. In retrospect, it's lucky Rawlinson didn't spend too much time going down the Elamite rabbit hole. While many Elamite characters had been borrowed from Akkadian, the Elamite language was an isolate, with no known linguistic relatives. This, combined with the fact that very few Elamite inscriptions exist, makes the language very difficult to interpret. It was certainly an interesting puzzle, but far less rewarding than unlocking the Akkadian script used in tens of thousands of ancient texts. Either way, when Rawlinson's Elamite package was released in 1855, it would put a period on the Behistun effort he'd begun two decades earlier. By this point, Akkadian was becoming well enough understood that the focus shifted to understanding the actual content of the reliefs, tablets, and other finds. While Rawlinson threw himself into this effort, the Assyrian excavations continued under Hormuzd Rassam. In late 1853, he uncovered a second palace at Nineveh, this one belonging to the last great Neo-Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal. It was here that Rassam discovered the other half of Ashurbanipal's library, along with an equally important artistic treasure, the magnificent relief sculptures of a royal lion hunt. Like I mentioned way back in episode 21, the lion hunt reliefs are amazing, and seeing them years ago in the British Museum was one of my original inspirations for doing this podcast series. Similar to the situation that had plagued Laird at Nimrud, the vast amount of Nineveh finds was starting to overwhelm the British Museum. Rawlinson took responsibility for selecting the most valuable pieces, including the lion hunt reliefs, for a shipment back to England, and ended up gifting the remainder to the French consul Victor Plaz. As it happened, Plaz had recently been excavating at Korzabad, and had a ship waiting in Basra that could carry the finds back to France. While Rawlinson's pieces arrived in London unscathed, the French portion suffered a slow-motion disaster. 
After Plaz was recalled in early 1855, the rafts with the bulk of the statues and reliefs from Ashurbanipal's palace were floated down the Tigris. Unfortunately, the lands through which they traveled were now in open rebellion against the Ottoman Empire. Piece by piece, the transports were attacked, pilfered, and sunk. In the end, not a single find made it to the port at Basra. Together with Boda's loss of his initial Korsabad finds ten years earlier, these twin tragedies bookended what would later be known as the heroic age of Assyrian archaeology. In March 1855, Rawlinson finally retired from the East India Company. By May, he was back in England, where, within a year, he was awarded a knighthood. So that's Sir Henry Rawlinson from now on. His next few years of professional life were a scholarly montage of studying, writing, publishing, and attending conferences. By this time, the focus had shifted to that mysterious cuneiform language that had preceded Akkadian. As mentioned previously, both Assyria and Babylonia used a common Semitic cuneiform language that was being called Assyrian, but would soon be known as Akkadian. Texts recently recovered from southern Mesopotamia had confirmed the suspicion that Akkadian stemmed from an even earlier non-Semitic written language. It would take another 14 years, until 1869, before a French-German Assyriologist named Julius Oper would suggest a name for this language. Since, by this time, the royal title King of Sumer and Akkad was well established, Oper reasoned that if the Semitic North was Akkad, then Sumer probably referred to the non-Semitic South. On this basis, he concluded that this original cuneiform script should be called Sumerian. Excavations of the cities of Sumer had begun back in 1849. Late that year, a British geologist and naturalist named Sir William Loftus had traveled to southern Mesopotamia as part of the Turco-Persian Boundary Commission tasked with establishing the border between the Persian and Ottoman empires. Since the work took him to a region seldom visited by Europeans, Loftus decided to try his hand at a bit of local archaeology. His first target was Warka, a site defined by three massive mounds circumscribed by six miles of ancient city walls. The topography alone suggested that the site might be important, but Loftus became even more convinced after a corresponding with Rawlinson, who suggested that the site might actually be the Old Testament city of Erech. Rawlinson was correct, but even earlier, the city had been known as Uruk, home of the quasi-mythical hero-king Gilgamesh, and the place where cuneiform writing may have first been invented. In early 1850, Loftus began digging trenches at Warka, and was soon rewarded with the discovery of a huge cache of coffins, considered remarkable at the time, but later determined to be from the much later Parthian period. 
Of course, having originally been inspired by Laird's Assyrian finds, Loftus was hoping to uncover amazing sculptured stone palaces like those at Nimrud and Nineveh. Unfortunately, being too far from sources of stone, the Sumerians had mainly relied on baked mud brick to construct their palaces, temples, and city walls. This material made the structures difficult to excavate, particularly at this early stage of archaeology. After a few weeks of digging, Loftus had little to show, aside from the coffins and a few inscribed tablets. He next moved on to the neighboring site of Telesankara. Here he recovered bricks inscribed by King Nebuchadnezzar II of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, which would later be used to establish the site as ancient Larsa. The bricks were found in the Temple of Shamash, which had been rebuilt during Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Loftus also found inscriptions later attributed to both the Kassite king Bornaboriash II and the great Amorite king and lawgiver Hammurabi. While Loftus moved on to excavate at the ancient Elamite and later Persian capital of Susa, the Sumerian excavations continued in 1854 under direction of the British consul at Basra, J. H. Taylor. Taylor's digs at Tel al-Mukayar uncovered inscribed tablets establishing the site as ancient Ur, supposed birthplace of the biblical Abraham. In the remains of the city's ziggurat to the moon god Sin, Taylor found inscriptions left by the Kassite king Kuragalzu, Shu Sin of the third dynasty of Ur, and the Chaldean kings Nebuchadnezzar II and Nabonidus. That same year, even Rawlinson got some Sumerian dirt on his hands when he conducted his first archaeological dig at the site of Birs Nimrud, actually ancient Borsippa. His main find was a foundation cylinder buried by Nebuchadnezzar II when he'd restored the city's temple to the god Nabu. While the Sumerian sites rarely yielded anything as remarkable or picturesque as sculptured palaces, what they did produce, and in pretty massive quantities, were inscribed tablets. In fact, in addition to the sites being excavated by budding archaeologists, numerous other tells were explored by locals, since the tablets they contained often fetched a high price in local bazaars. The fruits of such unauthorized digs often found their way into private collections, removed from their historical and physical context, and often with little idea where they'd come from. It was only when the increasing glut of tablets finally drove prices down that the mounds were once again left alone. While the focus had now shifted to Sumer, the book on Akkadian had not been entirely closed. Even though most experts, including Rawlinson and Hinks, considered the script pretty well understood, they'd failed to convince some scholarly societies, particularly the French, that they weren't just pulling the translations out of their hats. Of course, part of the skepticism had been fueled by the rival experts themselves. 
Their constant sniping and backbiting and criticism of each other's methods and discoveries had left less informed scholars in a perpetual state of confusion and doubt. So what to do? As it happened, the situation was resolved by a happy accident. The mound of Kalashergat, covering the original Assyrian capital of Assur, had undergone several excavations under both Laird and Rassam. While the site had never yielded the magnificent treasures of Nimrud or Nineveh, it had produced a few notable finds. In 1847, Laird uncovered the very first Assyrian statue ever found, a life-size effigy of the Neo-Assyrian king Shalmaneser III, seated on a throne that was completely covered in cuneiform writing. Two years later, Rassam found a clay foundation cylinder buried by the Middle Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser I. By 1857, Rawlinson had taken a crack at translating the text of the foundation cylinder. That same year, a British inventor and photography pioneer named William Henry Fox Talbot received a copy of the same inscription. Since he'd recently taken an interest in cuneiform studies, Talbot decided to perform his own translation. He then suggested to the Royal Asiatic Society that, as a general confidence builder, his translation might be compared side by side with Rawlinson's. Soon, a French-German Assyriologist named Julius Alper, the same guy who would later give Sumerian its name, asked to join the party, and, seemingly always last to the ball, the prickly Irish clergyman Edward Hinks was also invited to participate. Each performed an independent translation of the cylinder text and placed it in a sealed envelope to maximize suspense. On May 20, 1857, the Great Acadian Cuneiform Translation Contest was held at the offices of the Royal Asiatic Society in London. As it was later reported, the sealed envelopes were opened and the four versions were examined and compared. The result being that the translations of Sir Henry Rawlinson, of Dr. Hinks, and of Mr. Fox Talbot were found to be identical in sense, and very generally in words also, whilst it appeared to be merely owing to Dr. Appert's very imperfect acquaintance with the English language that a difficulty was found in bringing his version into unison with the others. In other words, they figured that if they would have had Appert translate the inscription into French, it would have lined up just as well as the others. Although the haters would continue to hate, for anyone in the know, it was pretty much case-closed on Akkadian cuneiform. The more complicated language of Sumerian would continue to challenge linguistic scholars over the remainder of the 19th century. In retrospect, it's hard to believe just how much had happened so quickly. From Rawlinson's first sight of Behistun to the decipherment of Akkadian had taken barely two decades. Excavation of the sculptured palaces of Assyria less than half that time. 
It was a staggering achievement, and a testament to both the spirit of the Enlightenment and the brilliance and fortitude of the period's Near Eastern scholars. Through their groundbreaking work, Assyria had been transformed from the arcane land of a few Bible passages to a fully realized ancient world. And, with the critical discovery of the Library of Ashurbanipal, both Babylonia and Sumer were well on the way toward their own rediscovery. Like Champollion with Egypt, Rawlinson, Laird, and their colleagues had given the peoples of the world a priceless gift— thousands of years of their own lost history. Next episode, we'll shift our attention to Anatolia. In the late Bronze Age, two great powers had waged an epic battle before the walls of ancient Troy. 3,000 years later, most scholars considered the story a myth. Had the city only existed in Homer's imagination? Or did the Iliad provide clues that properly interpreted, might identify the setting of a historical Trojan War. Frank Calvert, Heinrich Schliemann, and the search for Troy, next time on The Ancient World Rediscovery.